Hey y'all, this is Benny, the host of the Last Week at Podcast. Before we really get into this week's episode, I just wanted to say that it's been great fun for me and my co-host Mayank to use this podcast as a medium to chat with an incredible area of guests from all over the world on a variety of topics in the cricketing universe. For a couple of amateur podcasters, this is all possible due to Spotify for podcasters. And if you want to get in on this as well, here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer, so no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then, you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. As added features, video podcasts are also now available on Spotify. And when you want to take conversations with your fans to the next level, Q&A and polls are the best way to get them talking. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. So if you have an idea for a podcast, give it a try. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com podcasters to get started. Welcome to The Last Wicket, a cricket podcast that delivers you solid cricket content week after week, sometimes at the expense of flashier content. We are like the uh, Pujara of cricket podcasts. I'm your host, Benny, and I'm joined by a few friends. Mayank. Hey, everyone. Nish. Hi, everyone. And Himanish. Hi, everyone. And this week, we will be speaking with Karthikeya Manchala, known on Twitter as at static underscore A357, about the recent IPL auction. Uh, we talk interesting picks, surprising snubs, and what it all tells us about potential team strategies for the upcoming season. Uh, later, we will be talking about Himanish's recent article on Crickinfo titled, Virat Kohli, Stephen Smith, or Joe Root, who's the most consistent of them all? So we talk about unconventional ways to assess batsmen's consistency across their careers and see if we can come up with an answer to the question, who's the most consistent batsman in test cricket currently? But first, I'm going to get some quick thoughts from my fellow co-hosts about the recent Indian team that was selected for the T20 International Series against England. Himanish? Thanks, Benny. Um, yeah, so there's two or three talking points. Uh, I'm very happy that Varun CV is back. Often what happens yeah. is you get injured and then you get forgotten. Right. But I'm happy to say that he's back. Uh, I'm happy to see Pant is back. Hopefully he'll be playing in the middle order soon. He should be playing there. And I'm not very happy to see that Sanju Samson has been thrown away for some reason. Uh, he was told to score quick runs in Australia. He tried to do that. He was hitting well. He got out. That's what happens uh, when you try to hit sometimes. And I don't know why he's been punished for that. He's a good hitter. He should be in the team. So apart from that, I think it's been standard. I think Bumrah has been rested. Uh, but yeah, pretty standard. I'm pretty happy apart from the Samsung snub. Yeah. Nish? Yeah, I kind of want to echo uh, Himanesh's thoughts here on Sanjay Samson missing out. But apart from that, I think this is a pretty solid squad. Um, good to see Surya Kumar Yadav being rewarded for his um, consistent performances for uh, Mumbai Indians. And yeah, overall looking forward to the Indian series. Okay, and Mike? Yeah, I'm excited for Surya Kumar Yadav as well. I will disagree with Himanish. I actually don't think Samson should have been in there in the first place because I, in my opinion, he's not as consistent as Ishan Kishan. So it's unfair that he got dropped after that series, but I think Ishan Kishan is generally more uh, fair, more fair. consistent. So fair. that's what I think. But overall, pretty solid team. Guys, you all forgot the most interesting pick of them all. Uh, Rahul Tewat. Rahul Tewat, yeah. <laughs> I saw his name. Yeah. I saw his name and I... It's not like I'm unhappy with this election. I was, you know, I'm, I was just... I don't know, amused mostly. I'm sure he has good solid figures. I should have probably taken a look at that before forming my opinion on him. <laughs> um, but just from the little that I've seen of him in IPL and obviously that knock against Kings Levin, uh, Punjab, and then I think it was another chase along with Priyam Garg, was it? Um, that he, you know, aced. Um, and I can see like, and he had some good, decent bowling um, figures as well. Um, but I'm not sure if, you know, if they selected him purely based off 
you know, that one IPO season. I don't know if that was the right choice, but either way, I'm excited to see him. You know, he is uh, honestly one of the most fascinating cricket characters that I've seen in a while, and I hope he succeeds. Um, but, you know, to your point about Sanjay Samson, absence. I think the only way I, they can justify that is Ishan Kishan seems to be in red hot form uh, just like what, a few days ago. He scored a blazing ton. Um, so I think if they're just looking at it from like, let's make the most of a informed player, I think that makes sense. I think Sanju Sampton is going to end up as one of those players that we will always have polarizing uh, opinions on. People feel he's not consistent enough, but at the same time, like Gautam Gambir, some think he's like the best thing since sliced bread. Um, but I think I'm very happy to see Surya Kumar Yadav. Like, you know, I thought uh, there seemed to be a little bit of controversy with Virat Kohli and Surya Kumar Yadav, like in the last IPL season. I don't know if it was manufactured controversy, but it just seemed like, I, I just hope this does not affect his chances of being picked. I mean, he is delivering consistent numbers for the last few seasons. And uh, I think it's the right time to bring him in hopefully get some chances, especially ahead of the T20 World Cup. And, you know, hopefully he does well. The problem for India in the middle order is like they they don't have high pace hitters. So Ayer is of that kind of, uh, you know, build that he can play spin well. But if you bowl high pace to him, he can't score. So Sky has usually been like that, but he's improved in the past season. So it'll be interesting to see if they play Sky at four and whether he delivers on that. But yeah, um, Overall, I was happy seeing Kishan and Sky being selected. Devatiya, I think I think I remember that his domestic numbers show that he's a six hitter. So I don't know if they're looking for a genuine six hitter at seven, eight, or a backup for someone like Jadeja. I don't know what the thinking is, but I hope they've looked at his domestic numbers, which are decent. Like, so let's see what he does if he gets a game. Uh, there's five games, so hopefully they'll rotate and give Jadeja some rest. Yeah, it, it's funny, like, you know, for a long time, one of my biggest uh, grievances against Indian T20 team was that we just didn't have, like, the power hitters that most other teams had. And now you look at it, you know, we have potentially Ishan Kishan, Rishabh Pant, Hardik Pandya, Tewatya, who can, you know, come in and start hitting sixes. That is really exciting stuff. I hope they turn a corner and because the conventional thinking has been in India uh, to measure batsmen by averages and to watch them make runs. But that's not how you win T20 cricket. You want your batsmen to take risk. You want them to unlearn that whole concept of preserving your wicket. And I hope they turn a corner in that sense and they change their strategy to, you know, have those hard-hitting batsmen throughout because that is what more often than not wins you in the games. And we have two World Cups coming up for T20. So it's going to be exciting if they manage to tweak it and, and you know, stick to that strategy. The new IPL season isn't too far away, and that means it is that time of the year when T20 fans and experts get into a tizzy discussing the different permutations and combinations for all the teams. So with the conclusion of the recent IPL auction, where a bunch of players got sold to different teams, the focus only continues to intensify. With us to make sense of it all, we have Kartikeya, aka at static underscore A357, uh, now, Karthikeya grew up in Hyderabad, then moved to California to study data science. His free time mostly consists of watching and geeking out over T20 cricket, uh, from analyzing Nicholas Puran's success in the IPL to scouting Dhananjaya Lakshan in the Lanka Premier League. He prides himself on his T20 acumen, writes occasional blog posts, and create tournament data packages. But most of all, he would love to experience what it is like to consult an actual team. So here's hoping that potential employers from T20 teams are listening to this episode. Karthikeya, welcome to The Last Wicket. Yeah, nice to be on here. and excited to see what we can discuss over this one, over this yeah. period. Yeah. yeah, the auction, I think it's such a unique experience because every sport goes through these drafts and the auction actually values players differently. In a draft, you have these categories and you have players valued similarly within a category, whereas the auction is so much more unpredictable. So I think that throws out a lot of scope for debate as well. So yeah, it's, I think, an interesting concept and there's a lot to uncover. Yeah, it, it's fascinating. I remember when the IPL began and 
the auctions became a regular thing. It wasn't always universally accepted. I remember the days, I think it was Adam Gilchrist who said, feel like animals being auctioned off to the highest bidder. Like that was kind of like the perception. Uh, and I think a lot of it has kind of changed uh, over the years with teams taking a more professional approach to it, you know, as far as scouting, team strategy, all of that is concerned. Um, but Nish, uh, let me throw it to you. Uh, you had a, you know, for the first question. Absolutely. Um, Kartika, thank you for being um, on the show today. So let me kick off the conversation with a foundational question that, you know, crosses all our minds. Um, we've seen talk of matchups becoming more common, right? Uh, with think, tank, think tanks um, it, and even across the Twitter sphere and even across TV commentary. So the first question of this two-part question is, have you seen auction strategy, team strategy, and scouting evolving to become smarter over the years? The reason I ask is we've seen a lot of increased interest in Indian players like, you know, Shah Rukh Khan, Azharuddin, Hanishant, and Chetan Sakari. And the second part of this question is, um, you know, there's a perception that Mumbai Indians are the, always the first to the queue unearthing these gems before they become um, prolific and go on to play for their natural country. So are teams lapping up these talents so that they can get, you know, a first look at these players, you know, and also kind of like shielding them from other teams? Can you shed some light on these questions? Uh, so initially, your first question, the simple answer to it would be yes, because since 2008, when RCB essentially put out a test 11 in the opening game, we've come a long way. But thinking about it, the IPL is supposed to be the pinnacle for tactics, the pinnacle for, you know, all these matchups and data-driven aspects of the games. But I don't think it's actually reached the ceiling. So I know we'll get into the auction later, but just to give, get a sense of, where we're at in terms of all these matchups and stuff. So if you go back to last year's IPL, we saw there was this particular game between RCB and Kings Eleven Punjab. And what they did was they promoted Shivam Dube and Washington Sundar over AB de Villiers. And that stirred up a huge debate because there was this argument of why would you put your best batsman lower down the order? And there was actually to shield AB de Villiers from two risk spinners in the Kings Eleven team. And in theory, that was the right approach because it actually best suited the matchups for that particular game. And obviously, it didn't work and it stirred up this huge debate. And they immediately backtracked to the next game. So what that tells me is these teams are not focused on the process, but just the results that come through. And that's the wrong approach. I think we see that a lot in the auctions as well. We see teams not following the process that they set out to follow and keep changing it every uh, every season and that's where I think Mumbai Indians stand out from the rest because they have this continuity, they have to score and even if they refresh their players, they have the same template going forward. So I think that's where teams often slip up and I think in this example we see that they actually understood the nature of the matchups, RCB but I think there are teams that actually don't care about these matchups at times too and that's that even applies to Mumbai Indians. For example last year I think the top three teams, Mumbai Indians, Delhi Capitals, and Sunrisers Hyderabad, they fell to the same trap against Nicholas Puran. So Nicholas Puran, we know, is a massive spin hitter, and he smashes the sixth bowler of every other team. He has a strike rate of about 200. And all these teams got there, and they throw out uh, part-time spinners. They throw out six bowlers at him. And I think all three of them lost to Kings Eleven Punjab, who eventually didn't make the playoffs. So what that tells me is these teams haven't reached the ceiling in terms of matchups or whatever. So while they've evolved, that's for sure, I don't think they're where they could be. And to answer your second question about uh, scouting, I think every team has a decent enough scouting network, but Mumbai Indians actually trust their players more and keep them and invest them over a long period of time. And I think that, again, comes back to the process versus results thing because when players... When you pick a player who's 19 or 20 years old and they don't crack the IPL in the first year, you don't just release them. You want to invest in them over a period of time. I think the same thing happened to Sarfraz Khan when he was at RCB. I think mm -hmm. he was uh, blackballed for his poor fitness levels and he was released for that. And I think he was one of the few players retained in the mega auction for RCB and he didn't get any games and he was released the following year. Whereas you wouldn't see that with... Mumbai Indians, even when Ishan Kishan had a poor season, they stuck with him, they invested in him and they got, invested in him and they got the results. So, yeah, right. I think in, that's where trust is missing in some of these teams. 
in terms of their process i i just going to add about sarfraz khan i think it it's the most uh, one of the most uh, dismaying examples of how rcb mistreats their players because he was retained for a reduced amount so that they could pay kohli uh, I, i think to 2 crores extra and then he was just let go in the next season without getting many games so that's what mi don't do and that's what rcb do and that's why they lose so i just uh, adding to that and uh, it's funny like i came across this on twitter and as much as i don't like it since i'm a csk fan i think it's a little true someone said mumbai indians don't buy ipl stars they make ipl stars um and you know they gave the examples of bumra and hardik pandya and you know that's pretty accurate like uh karthik you know what are your thoughts on that <laughs> it's hard to say because i wouldn't undervalue experience Mm-hmm. Chennai Super Kings just had a bad year last year but they're one of the most successful IPL teams so right i think teams have different ways of approaching it but yeah i would say mumbai indians definitely have a formula that they've set up for the long term whereas csk might have to reset next year and they'll probably end up following mumbai's formula again so yeah it's interesting that way I I mean I hope that happens as a CSK <laughs> fan. Uh but <laughs> let's talk about like one of the bigger talking points from the the recent mini auction uh Chris Morris. Uh I know there was a, quite a bit of talk about his prize um tag and like there were some interesting chatter from some South African journalists about that. Uh <laughs> but more importantly I want to f- you know focus on you know the prize that he went for within the context of the IPO. Um you know he essentially broke the bank do you think these mini auctions are getting more crazier like are more volatile than usual because teams are especially buying players for a limited time instead of like a, let's say a full 3 year contract yeah definitely i saw i think chris morris has paid double of what jafra is going to get paid and almost four times of what kanki sarabada is going to get paid so it's pretty crazy but i don't think that 17 or 16 crore price tag was actually massive in terms of this auction because there were two teams who were looking for an overseas fast bowler kings 11 and rajasthan royals right. and kings 11 had almost half their purse for that and rajasthan were looking to fill in just one starting 11 overseas spot so both teams were willing to go how much ever they wanted to get chris morris so i think that's where the volatility comes in because this so the very limited spots and there are only a very few players who have that elite skill set in a mini auction and i think when mitchell stark pulled out it was pretty obvious that morris was going to break the bank uh, so is this do, do you think it's a reflection that teams are willing to look uh, short term right just short term prospects compared to long term because when we think of teams or franchises we always tend to think of it the way we think for let's say national teams right we're always looking for the more young players because we want to groom them for you know they're seen as long term prospects but i feel like franchise cricket is a way different because they're looking for titles at the end of the day and titles you know you want the best players for that and not necessarily young players which i think rajasthan royals did for quite a long time is they were looking for like a long term result but other mm-hmm. teams like csk and mi were always you know looking for short term Yeah, I think that's there because like I said earlier these teams are super results oriented instead of process oriented but at the same time both Rajasthan and Kings 11 they were looking to fill in starting 11 spots and for me I think almost 90% of your budget should be focused on your top 11 players who are going to make the starting 11 so I can see why they ended up breaking the bank and I think your development players or your luxury players are probably supposed to be focused on those who are not going to make the starting 11 you try build them for the future season so i think that's where mumbai indians pick of marco jansen that was interesting because he's a 20 year old he hasn't played for south africa ever and they're probably just looking to see what he can offer and probably build for that mega auction in the coming years so i think there's definitely scope for teams looking harder scouting further for their backup spots but in terms of Jai Richardson getting a 14 crore contract or Morris getting a 16 crore contract i don't think it's surprising because i at the end of the day you want a starting 11 that can compete with the best yes yeah, so i was just saying i think it's 
uh, interesting the point that he made about Michel Stark that Karthikeya made about Michel Stark because with him ruled out, it ended up being that Chris Morris was the only overseas pacer of quality which who was available in the auction. And it ended up being sort of a supply versus demand sort of scenario where teams knew they had that spot to fill, but they didn't really have too many options, which ended up helping Chris Morris in that way. And he, you know, he broke the bank. Um, but I think apart from the odd cases such as Yuvraj who went for, you know, ridiculous 14 or 16 crores a few seasons back, there's not going to be a lot of those outliers who just get picked for their fan base or, or whatever. It, it's going to come down to what's available. And in this case, Chris Morris was the only solid option available or one of the few options available. Um, and that resulted in, in, you know. Yeah. I, and I also feel sometimes players are there at the right moment at the right time to be picked up. Uh, because that may not always happen like the next year or the previous year. It's just at that particular point in time, like K. Gautam, for instance, any other year, I don't think he would have necessarily fetched that prize, but I thought there was a, you know, there was a spot to fill for CSK and they were willing to go all out for that. So sometimes it's just like, like you said, it's just a matter of supply and demand. Yeah. I just want to make a point that, you know, now that Chawla has gone to Mumbai Indians, watch him take like a bucket load of wickets, which he didn't take, fortunately. <laughs> we want our former players to do well. So no, no worries, no regrets. Morris is also, uh, Morris is also oh, yeah, that's... in CSK, right? Yes. And that's when I heard of him. And yeah, he should do well. I've been a yeah. fan of his since the CSK days. His yorkers are lethal. When he yeah. gets it right, yeah. Yeah, so this supply demand thing brings me to the next question, which is again Kyle Jamieson, who isn't proven in the format at all, but he went for 15 crores. So what explains this? Is it RCB scrambling to get one fast bowler because I think they released Odana and they don't have foreign fast bowlers? So are teams giving too much weight to his test performances versus India? Uh, where do you see him in terms of performance, Kartikeya? No, that was shambolic, wasn't it? Because they had Morris for 9 crores or 10 crores. They released him and they went up to 9.75. And that's when they pulled out. Yeah. So they value Morris for 10 crores and they, were, they, and they released him. So that tells you yeah. that they assumed he would go for less than 10 crores in the auction. That's ridiculous because as we said, the limited supply of fast bowlers, you can't expect a quality player like Morris to go for less than 10. So... Once they missed the bus on Jai Richardson, who went after Morris, they probably saw Jameson as the only uh, quality pick, according to them. And they had only one overseas fast bowler slot to fill because they picked Kane Richardson and Daniel Sams for their backup fast bowling spots. And personally, I don't trade both of them. So they just panicked and went all out for Jameson. But I think if they look deeper, they could have picked, I don't know, Alzari Joseph or Chamar Holder from the West Indies, both are high upside fast bowlers. Or they could have gone for this guy called Ben Sears from New Zealand. I think he's a high upside bowler too. So if they picked one of those guys and released Kane Richardson, they could have probably gone harder at Morris or Jai Richardson. So I think that's why they missed a trick. But yeah, coming back to your point on whether they overvalued his test performances, probably because his performances were very visible as opposed to, I don't know, say Alzari Joseph, who probably goes under the radar in ODI cricket. So, yeah, I think that kind of visibility issues definitely prevalent. Did he get Kohli out in March in the Test Series? He probably did, you know. He, he got a bucket load of tickets. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I, I did think about that when, you know, even before the auction, there was a little bit of buzz about Jameson and how much he would go for. It always seemed to be a question of how much, not like if he would get picked. Uh, and I wonder how much of it is because of his performance against India. You know, like I, I feel like players who mm. do well against India uh, nationally, they always seem to be in top demand when the auctions come around. Do you think that's a good way of looking at it? Like, especially since it's the Indian Premier League and you have mostly Indian <laughs> players, do you think that's a fair way for teams to approach? Like, let's go for players who do well against the Indians. I mean... It was a small sample size and it was a test series. I don't think there's right. much to read into in that case. And I think if you look at his general skill set, there's definitely very high upside. So 
I think he's a good new ball bowler and he can bang the ball into the pitch. So that should trouble local Indian batsmen. But for someone who has never toured the subcontinent, you're paying him 15 crores. That's a huge risk, especially when you're forced to start him in the 11. Yeah. I mean, if if nothing at all, like I feel like there, there's this requirement that every IPL season needs at least one tall foreign bowler. I think last year it was Billy Stanley, and this year we have Jameson. So <laughs> I don't know if that's like a thing. Yeah, let's talk seam bowling all around this. Um, Moises Henriques and Dan Christian both went for over for group. Like, why are they so valuable to, to teams? And um, is it because, you know, there's a short supply of uh, lower order hitting in general? Yeah, so this is the interesting thing with both Dan Christian and Moses Henrique. So, Kings Eleven Punjab went for both of them. And it was interesting because they had two spots to fill before, uh, before Henrique's went up for bidding. And I knew one of the spots was definitely reserved for Fabian Allen because they had a dip at Moin Ali early in the auction. So, I knew one of their spots was reserved for Fabian Allen later in the piece. So, for that... Other spot, they went after Moses Henriquez, Dan Christian, and Kyle James. And that tells me they saw all these three guys as same bowling all-rounders. And that's a very narrow way of looking at it. Because all three of them are different players. Henriquez is a top-order batsman who can bowl a bit. Christian is a lower-order batsman who can bowl a bit. And Jamieson is a proper bowler who can bat a bit. So I think the moment teams see that someone can bat and someone can bowl pace, they just jump on them and throw in their money. I don't know how much of that is actually, you know, I feel like a lot of the time we go for the promise of players, like what they can do, and then teams get disappointed very quickly. They don't give them a long run. Uh, yeah. They get like one or two seasons and then they disappear. They, ne- they never come back. And I can think of so many foreign players, you know, bought like that, used for two years and then never seen again. And I think one glorious exception who we'll probably talk about later is Glenn Maxwell. Um, but for most part, you know, I don't know. They, they're just like given like a very short shift. Just come on, just come and dazzle us like immediately. And if you don't, then you disappear. Like Corey Anderson, like I think for me, I mean, I remember the big uh, bucks that he earned, the big potential that people kept talking about. And then what happened? Like he was there for what, two years, three years? And then uh, not seen again. So it is a good time to be like seam bowling all-rounders from either Australia or England, um, actually mainly Australia. Um, but yeah, uh, I can see like why I feel teams go for them. They're just looking for that, I don't know, that big performance that will kind of shore up their performance. It, um, it also reminds me of Dirk Manis, now that you say that. Um, that was another guy who came in early from, first from Holland and then Australia and then moved yeah. there for three, four seasons. And another CSK guy. I guess he was, Yes. Oh, I thought he was in Delhi at one point, but... Uh, he was in Delhi, but he was also in DSK before that. Or after that, I think. Gotcha. After that. Mm. Yeah, and then yeah. went to RCB, got so, um, injured, and brought Chris Gale back into the fold. That's <laughs> <laughs> the biggest <laughs> achievement. So um, I'm going to piggyback off your comment about Fabian Island, Karthikeya. Um, I think, obviously, he was bought at his base prize. Um, well, he's a pretty skillful player, so... One of the questions I had was, why didn't he go for much higher? And then the other player that I've been curious about, and I don't watch a lot of CPL, but whenever I've seen him, Chris Green has been pretty solid. So mm-hmm. were you surprised at him not being picked at all, considering there's somebody like um, Sunil Narayan who already you know plays that sort of a role? Yeah, so <laughs> the first question I would ask is, if Fabian Allen was switched up with Moin Ali in the auction order, who would get the bigger bid? probably Fabian Allen because I don't know, they both fill up this fill up a similar spot. And I think the team that wanted to go after Moin Ali, CSK, they just went all out on it. Or I don't know, let's but apart from that, I think Fabian, although I highly rate him, he hasn't played cricket off late and teams probably counted against him. But I think the underlying point here is he's an extremely high upside player. Someone who has a career strike rate of 169 you can't ignore them because that's well above anyone else in the auction pool. And he can also bowl some handy left-arm spin. So when, when you have a package like Fabian Allen, you should ideally do all you can to almost get him to start in your 11. I think Kings 11, ideally, they'd drop the scale and start with Fabian Allen in the 11 because he's such a high upside player. But in a mini auction, I think, like we discussed earlier, 
teams are more willing to go with their risk averse players like Henriquez or Cutting or Christine. All these guys have played the IPL before, not done particularly well, but hey, they're performing here and there, aren't they? So I think teams are more willing to go for that risk averse option. And I don't like it because players like Allen and even if you look at Ramana Lagurbaz from Afghanistan, he's a very exciting opener and middle order batsman. I think his intent is the future of T20 cricket. So all these players missing out on contracts, I think they can make starting 11 in IPL teams even now. And if not, it's a great opportunity for them to develop in the future. So yeah, I think ideally there will be more demand for these guys. Chris Green is interesting because I think his batting has declined a lot. So that counts against him because I think no other overseas spinner was picked in the auction. Adil Rashid, Kais Ahmed, Sandeep Lamanchani, no one was picked. So Mujib Rahman was the only one who was picked at the end by Sunrisers. So yeah, I think Chris Green probably missed out because of his batting honestly. And I think, you know, almost every, so every season this happens, right? Like some players don't get picked uh, in the auction and then you have one or not one or two actually quite a few ex-players or experts who all tweet like how is this possible why was this player not picked why was this player picked instead of it happens every year without fail and i feel like even after what 11 years of ipl people still don't get it that it's about what the team wants because in the beginning that's what teams did right they picked all the big name players which is why we had that rcb test 11 for such a long time (laughs) but now teams are much smarter. They, they will need to fill the gaps in their squad. And it's not always about the biggest name. It's about a player who can fill that gap and, you know, help the team's cause overall. And I don't understand why players, ex-players and experts, so-called experts still don't get that. Yeah, I think there was this case with Alex Hales. He had an yeah. amazing big bash. He, I think, averaged 48 at strike rate of 170. And everyone was like, why wasn't this guy picked? There were no other openers picked in the auction. So, yeah. Yeah. I don't, if there's no requirement, you don't pick them, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I don't think IPL locks, uh, or I should say, IPL does not lack for quality openers. I think every yeah. team has at least one. Uh, now, let's talk about the Rajasthan Royals, right? Um, I think a lot of people have commented that they do have a well rounded team now. Uh, we talked about Morris, you know, he makes good, you know, he makes a good combination with Joffre Archer. And they have a backup for Butler in Livingstone. And they seem to have like a good set of Indian spinners. So essentially, they look to have built an optimal team. So they have the overseas Pacers, Indian middle order, peppered with overseas hitters, Indian spinners. And this is curiously similar to the Mumbai Indians template. Um, And it looks like they might, if, you know, if everything goes well for them, they might just give Mumbai Indians a tough fight. do you think other teams will be following this template soon or they should be following it? It's interesting because when England began this ODI and T20 transformation since 2016, everyone goes, why don't you copy them? And my counter to that is uh, teams don't have the resources to model it around England because their they white ball batting depth is insane and they bat so deep. So you can't almost go and ask bowlers to start batting like those in the England team. But in the IPL, since you have all the players available from all different countries, I don't see why anyone shouldn't copy their my template. There's honestly no reason not to. So yeah, I think we'll see more teams doing that in the future. And uh, yeah. but one thing that I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on Karthikeya was uh, Chiteshwar Pujara. Um, first of all, as a CSK fan, I have mixed feelings <laughs> that they bought him. I know he has, you know, played some good, you know, good fast knocks in domestic ODIs or T20s. I'm still not convinced that he did deserve place in uh, any IPL side. He, he might prove me wrong, and, and I'll be very grateful if he does, since he now plays for CSK. <laughs> um, but the other thing that I was not very happy about was like the applause that he got people are saying oh that was so nice that was cute or you know that was respect pujara does not need that he's he doesn't need to prove anything to anyone about his place among like the indian batsmen like the indian great batsmen so to speak he's proven his value time and again he does not need to be picked in an ipl team to get the respect that he so deserves i think that was condescending like 
I don't think as a professional sportsman, you need that pity claps for being selected in a T20 team. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I didn't like the applause because, like you said, he has nothing to prove and it almost belittles his abilities because he's a quality test batsman. I think you should respect him for that. Uh, in terms of him not deserving an IPL deal, probably not because well, he hasn't played the IPL for the last five or six years and he has... If you were willing to fill up a spot, you'd probably put it on some young player and invest on them. So he probably didn't deserve a spot and that was quite disrespectful. But I think and probably denies him going to county cricket as well, right? Because I think he was lining up a county deal and that might come to a halt because of this. But yeah, I think there was a good point that Jared Kimber made in one of his podcasts recently. And he said players can improve if they... Uh, if they expand their range and play other formats. So let's say Nicholas Puran starts playing test cricket, he could probably improve his pace hitting range. So I think that way Pujara playing T20 cricket might, I don't know, upgrade his test game in some aspects in terms of, I don't know, declaration, batting or whatever. So I think we should see it in a positive light. But yeah, the applause around the auction room, that was not ideal. <laughs> It's all very curious, right? Because I don't think he'll start in the 11. Uh, I don't think they need Indian backup because they have Jagdeesan who's in form. They have Gaikwad who's in form. They have Uthappa who's in form. He scored a century, I think, yesterday. I don't know why they bought him. Uh, but I also heard that he might leave the IPL halfway and go play some county cricket. So it's all very baffling. And the applause was, of course, patronizing and condescending, as you said. But I don't know what's going on there. But I'm happy because uh, Pujara is my favorite player and CSK is my favorite player. I can see him in a yellow jersey and die peacefully. As you can see, Karthike, we are uh, three of us here are CSK fans and one person is notoriously not a fan of CSK. <laughs> it's very obvious. Um, no, but one other thing that I wanted to add about that was too, um, Pujara put his name up in the auctions, right? Nobody, you know, forced him to put, put it up. He wants to play T20. That is why he put his name. So this argument that, oh, he's missing out on valuable county cricket time. For one, he's played enough cricket in England that I think missing out on some county cricket matches should not be too much of an issue. Second, if he, he's at a stage in his career when, where he wants to be part of the IPL, where he wants to play cricket. And guess what? Like everyone here, he wants to earn more money to you know support his family. So I just don't get that part of the outrage that oh, why mm. did CSK pick him? They should have just, yeah, everyone ignores him so that he can play county mm. cricket. And at the same time, everyone is patronizing that, oh, yeah, well, he got picked, so let's all applaud. Oh yeah, that's that. Yeah, that's a good point actually. So yeah, I think he put up his name and I think this is a common trend among all players. I think, like you said, a couple of South African journalists who are having a go at Chris Morris. At the end of the day, he has a short career. He's injury prone. He's in his 30s. And when he retires, he wants a decent paycheck. So it's the same thing that goes on for West Indies players as well, who sometimes are blackballed for playing the IPL or other leagues. At the end of the day, you have a short career and you want to make the most out of it. So, And the IPL, right. in some players' mind, it's the pinnacle of the sport. So if they want to play it, you yeah, you can't hold them, hold that against them. This is going to be a terrible comparison, but I'm going to make it anyway. It's like Indian actresses, right? They have a very short shelf life because once they reach a certain age, nobody wants to pick them for their projects. So they have to make the most of that short span. It could be anywhere between like five to eight years. Um, after that, They'll, they'll only get the role of the sister or the mother. So I, I, I feel the same thing with it. You know, uh, cricketers too, like, after a certain age, nobody's going to want them. And I don't begrudge them for, you know, putting up their names or asking for a certain price. Yeah, the one thing that I suddenly recall about Pajara was back when him and Rohit Sharma were youngsters still, you know, bursting through the Indian domestic scene. Uh, one of the things I remember was he had a really, really good list A record. So obviously he had a fantastic first class record and we've shown that in, for the Indian test team. But he actually had a really good, you know, list A record all the time. And he used to talk about, similar to how Lakshman did back in the days, that he wanted to play all formats for India. So, I mean, it's understandable. I don't necessarily doubt that. But yeah, I, I didn't watch the auction. But yeah, definitely the way they... Uh, they, you know, managed, handled that, that few minutes was not ideal. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I don't blame him for trying to play all formats. Anish, 
Yeah, I think uh, regarding putting your price tag on yourself, it doesn't get more um, stranger than or you know funnier than Matthew Wade putting his base price at like one crore or something. Now, now I don't know his numbers behind you know that price tag or to justify it, but that felt a uh, little out there. <laughs> but at the end of the day, you know, it's your your life and what you want to make it comes down to you if tomorrow we all have we all have a good paying job i assume now if tomorrow a better offer comes there's every chance we could you know jump on the train and you know get get that next opportunity so it's loyalty in sport is you know it's only in the minds of fans and it really doesn't exist in reality by the way i want to clarify that i am a graduate student so i have neither a job nor a <laughs> correct i is. forget i forget <laughs> himanish you're doing the guards work quite literally <laughs> Yeah, I think the point about Matthew Wade probably out of uh, topic, but I think some players they want to earn a certain amount if they want to make the trip, especially if they're going to sit on the bench throughout the season. So I think we've seen a few weird base prices in the last few years. I think Andile Pefluquayo, who I don't rate him personally, <laughs> he keeps his base price at one point five crores. He's never got an IPL deal previously, so I think Matthew Wade had his base price at one crore, like you said. probably alex hale as well who i don't know if he thought he'd get picked as an opener but he had the space price at 1 and 1/2 crore as well so i think they wanted earn a certain base amount if they want to go and warm the bench yeah so we can't end without talking about two of our favorite ipl topics right rcb and glen maxwell so rcb has the suspension for overspending glen maxwell has the suspension for underperforming So finally he's gone for I don't know how many 14 crores so now what is this mystery because he keeps underperforming in the IPL he's done that over the past few years what are RCB hoping for from him and where do you see him going and what do you see him doing in the season yeah honestly i have an answer to almost all your questions so far but i don't think i can give you a great answer here but <laughs> because it's honestly mystifying because he his numbers against left arm spin and fast bowling last year that's what i saw was suspect and then he goes out and smashes jaspreet bumrah and rahundra jadeja against india right after that and he smashed jafra archer right before the ipl so why does he come to the ipl and fail i honestly don't know but i think the point he made last year before or midway through the ipl was very pertinent he said in australia i have a fixed position as a finisher and i don't get that in the ipl and Initially my thoughts were well you're getting paid over 10 crores every year and is supposed to embrace that volatility as a middle order player Nicholas Puran who was playing his second IPL last year he had a very volatile role and he aced it so that's not an excuse right but i think for Maxwell it's about lowering the expectations and giving him a less volatile role so i don't know if i were RCB i would stick him up stick him up to opening or send him in at number 3 just make it predictable what what's supposed to be expected of him and i don't know reduce that volatility that he seems to talk about so maybe hear him out and give him the best chance to perform honestly because it's hard to tell why he wouldn't perform in that middle order role but at this point if it's happening repeatedly there's probably some trend that we can't uncover from out, from the outside so yeah that's what i would do probably stick him up to open a semi minute number 3 every game I think we talked about this last year when the IPL was going on and I think Jared asked about this or someone did and I sort of uncovered this trend that a lot of his scores are these single figure scores and it's often his first or second scoring shot that he tries which gets him out so either he's coming in too low and he's not settling in because a lot of his scores are those low scores so I I think that might be the problem and I think what you say that you know put him on the top and let him be free and settle down and then hit might be the best way to go about it. now whether rcb with their genius brains think about this strategy <laughs> i was going to say he's going to the team that likes to make like one of the most like you know you, you just cannot understand like how they arrived at a decision so you add those two to, to, together i think it's going to be is going to generate a lot of discussions and a lot of debates that's for sure and you know what if rcb end up winning the ipl then I, I don't know. I, I don't even know how to make sense of all of that. Um, but, you know, Karthikeya, thank you so much for, you know, coming on our show and talking with us about the auction. Uh, there will be lots more to talk about as, you know, uh, the IPL begins. And I hope you return and share more of your thoughts once uh, 
you know, it all kicks off this year. Yeah, definitely. My pleasure. I think it was a great discussion. I'd be happy to jump on if you invite me in the future. Yeah, absolutely. In the first of a recurring segment that we are creatively calling Stat Attack, uh, we are going to attempt to answer the question, who is the most consistent batsman of them all? Uh, it's a straightforward question, but can you know throw up conflicting opinions backed up by selective stats and anecdotal perceptions. So our resident stats guru, Himanish, is, uh, you know, he took a stab at it recently and he came up with some interesting ways to find the answer. So Himanish, why don't you start off by giving us a quick overview of your article? Yeah, thanks, Benny. Uh, so this consistency question is often talked about in cricket, and we often label batsmen consistent or inconsistent, and we have a very colloquial definition of it, which we never really formalize. So this idea came to me when I was working on some research three years ago, four years ago now, uh, on clusters. So your stars and your galaxies form clusters together, and it's important to sort of quantify that. So in a similar way, you can cluster the successes in a batsman's career. So how the distribution of scores works in a batting career is that the chances of crossing a certain score are more or less correlated with the average. So the distribution is that beautiful that the average more or less tells you everything there is to know. But there's also this question of how those scores are distributed within a career. So two batsmen might have 50-50s in a 150-test match career. But for one batsman, they might have come in the beginning, while for the other batsman, they might have been distributed properly throughout the career. So the second batsman is more consistent, definitely. And that's how we colloquially define consistency in our heads when we talk about batting, that has this guy scored enough high scores frequently enough? So that's what you call a consistent patch or batsman. So I took the algorithm we use for galaxy clusters and we applied it to uh, batting careers to find these clusters. So the definition of a cluster would be you score this X threshold score often enough. And if you score this often enough in a given phase, then that would be a cluster. So your, your career would be divided into clusters and voids, which is also the terminology we use for galaxies. So then the idea would be to look at uh, how much of your career is covered in these clusters. This is the basic stat that you get out of this. So if I define a consistent phase by a threshold score and a minimum gap or a maximum gap, then I divide your career into clusters. Now, someone who's been consistent enough will have a high proportion of clusters in his career versus someone who hasn't. So the basic stat is looking for the proportion of a career in cluster. So that was the beginning. Uh, from there, <clears throat> sorry, from there you go on to how many of your runs did you score in these clusters? And that is important because a batsman who has very high highs scores a lot of his runs in a small portion of time in his career. And so batsmen like Sehwag who have very high highs will score most of their runs in small clusters which occupy small percentages of their careers. So this ratio of the percentage of runs scored and the percentage of innings uh, spent in these clusters was important. So that's what I call the conceit factor. So these are a few metrics I used to write this article for Cricket Vo. It came out, I think, two weeks ago. And this was the basic idea that you look at the proportion of clusters in a batsman's career. And that's how you define it. So, you know, commentators use this ubiquitous term, purple patch, right? Uh, especially when a batsman is stringing together consistently high scores. And I'm assuming these clusters are essentially a more precise and exacting way to measure this purple patch. So going through your article, I saw that a lot of the best batsmen either have a large number of thin clusters throughout their career, like like Brian Lara, or, or, or few but prolonged clusters like Adam Gilchrist. So purely from this vantage point, which type of batting consistency do you think modern test teams would prefer? You know, can, can we say one is better than the other? I think it's hard to parse it like that. I think what you want to look at is A, the total percentage covered in clusters. Now that could come in two very big clusters or it could come in 10 very small clusters, but the total is what matters. But definitely you'd want someone who has a consistent patch every few series or every two series. So I think that is more desired. And that's why this is a good way to break careers up because you might have the same aggregate stats, but this will show you how those successes are distributed in time. And that's what is important to judge a player, right? Because someone like Cook, if you look at his cluster profile, uh, towards the end of his career for a very, very long time, he didn't have any successful clusters. 
So although he has a high average, he had a very, very lean patch towards the end. And that's what I'm trying to sort of prize out uh, using this method. And yeah, this, this correlates with purple patches. It's a rigid way of defining them. So one of the things that I had in mind while I was looking through this was, do you have a minimum number of innings that you take into consideration for a yeah, cluster? So, um, so the minimum is four because you don't want any random couple of innings to show up as a cluster. So that's that's more noise than gotcha. signal. So you don't want, you know, short short streaks. So usually there's a minimum. I see. Okay, that makes sense. So I'm, I'm going to focus on Pajara versus Kohli because I know I looked at even Don Bradman and, and, you know, all these different batsmen from different eras. But the reason I focus on that is it's relatively easier because their careers overlap just based on their bowling. Um, so we see that Pajara's cl- uh, percentage of innings in the cluster is higher when we look at your first method, which was using the median. Um, but shouldn't the median also be an important uh, consideration because if the medium is significantly lower, and I don't think that's the case with Pajara, but let's say two people have the same percentage and one has a much lower medium, that's also a very, very uh, important factor to think about. Oh, yeah, so these are two philosophies of looking at these clusters, right? So clusters and how they form in a career are a function of these two parameters. One of them is the height of the threshold, which is the threshold score, and then there's the gap. So uh, Median is a relative way of looking at it because relative to your own distribution of scores, how often do you cross that middle point? Because the median is the middle point of it. So how often do you cross that? Whereas the second method use an absolute threshold, which is a more absolute definition of batting well, right? If you score 40 or 50, you batted well. So the median was just to include everyone, right? right? Because you can miss out on all-rounders or, uh, you know, uh, number seven players or number six players. Right. So the median was just a way to round that up. And the better way to do it is take a threshold like a 35 or a 40 or a 50. That depends on you. But the median is relative and that 50 is absolute. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And that sort of brings me to my next thought that, you know, when I was, obviously you, you had the, the cutoff or the qualification set to 5,000 test runs. And I was thinking if we set that to say 2,000, uh, you know, somewhere lower, there's, um, I think Jadeja right now is at 1,900 odd test runs, so he's almost there. But, you know, within a few series, I'm sure he'll be at 2,000. And I feel like that would show that he's been pretty consistent as well. Like, if you lower that threshold, I don't know if you've done Yeah, so that's what the median that. is designed to do, right? So for for a player like Jadeja, your expectation will not be a median of 35. Batman's. Right. Your expectation will be that he's an all-rounder, so his median should be around 20. So relative to those expectations of what Jadeja is as a batsman over his career, how does he overperform? So that's the relative way of looking at it. And that's also the reason you have that filter, because you want long enough careers of batsmen who scored enough runs to do this analysis. Otherwise, there's no point to making classes that have long careers right. or enough runs. No, that, that makes sense. I, I feel like if we do drop that number to be too lower in our in your analysis, then you'll see people like um, Gautam Gambhir, uh, Jadeja, who've had consistency, but only over two or three years, you know, where they've been yeah. very, very good. And otherwise yeah. they've been okay. So it, it makes sense because you're trying to balance a consistency over a longer period at the same time, making sure you give them, you know, the right um, sort of break because they bat lower in the order. Uh, because right. otherwise, if we so expect the number seven to order, yeah, yeah, because otherwise, if you expect the number seven to average 50, that's, you know, you're being ridiculous. It's not the yeah. number seven's fault. Yeah. Um, the second analysis that you did, which was, as you said, you know, picking a threshold, which you did uh, for 50 runs and three innings as a gap, that made me wonder uh, how teams can use that. So, you know, Joe Root, you mentioned, you know, scores a lot of his runs, even when he's not at peak. Um, and the first thought that came to mind was, I would be okay with a guy like that batting lower because even if he isn't in form, he's still going to churn out those 30s and 40s and potentially um, potentially be you know good support for the tail and make sure that the team ends up scoring runs. So that was one way I thought about it. Uh, how else do you see teams actually using that? And I, I know it will be subjective to teams and their combinations, but, but still, generally. No, that's a very good point because if you have a long enough first-class career, you can actually infer something from such analyses that someone like Joe Root, who's a very peculiar player in this whole set, 
is a very valuable player for teams in places like England or South Africa where batting isn't easy. So you know that this player will return, you know, 30-40 runs even when he's doing badly. So if you have a long enough first-class right. career and you have enough data to supply to the team, then uh, if you get a player like Joe Root uh, through the data, I think it's bound to be very useful. But yeah, you... You do need a big enough career because there's a lot of noise in cricket data. So this analysis is, this one is retrospective and not predictive because there's so many factors that influence why this clustering happens. And that's a question I haven't asked in uh, piece, that this happens because you have certain combinations of conditions and bowlers over series that you get comfortable with or you become bunnies too. And that's why you don't score or you score. So there's a cricketing reason behind it. And uh, over long careers, that sort of averages out, but you can still correlate those combinations to these clusters. So it's it's better to have a long career to make judgments out of this sort of analysis. Right. This sort of piece is more, uh, you know, uh, academic as of now. It's hard to predict which, much out of it. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah, and I think the, the point that you made there, which I agree with, was, you know, domestic careers aren't always, you know, don't give you that much data. And that's... Especially true for people like Joe Root, who were you know, sort of earmarked at a young age yeah, yeah. and brought into the team with yeah. not as much first class or list A cricket. So that makes sense. Yeah. So when I when I think about a batsman with consistency issues, I think of a Chinkirahane. Um, you know, let's use them as an example, right? Like anecdotally, I always perceive him to be one of those players who scores a couple of big knocks, then goes for a long period of, you know, poor form. Uh, what does a cluster method say about his consistency or lack of it? Yeah, so this this perception that a lot of Indian fans and we have about Rahane, that he scores some very good hundreds and then he goes quiet. Uh, it's actually ratified by this method because I ran his numbers today uh, because he wasn't in the original set and I ran his numbers today. And his consistency factor is 0.64, which means that if you take the ratio of the innings, he sp- yeah, so the the innings he spends in clusters to the runs he makes in these clusters is 0.64, which is very low. So if you compare him to batsmen who scored more than 5,000 runs, he is in the bottom 10. So that means he has a few very high highs where he scores most of his runs. Uh, He's also spent only 41% of his career in these clusters, uh, if you take 50 as the threshold. So that's the third lowest after, I think, Peterson and Thorpe. So yeah, so this, this method actually confirms that, that he has a lot of barren patches in between a few good. And that shows up in his average, but this is a way to break it up and see how it pans out through a career. So what makes teams stick with players like that? Like, I, I don't get it. Like, because overall, like, his average is also, I think it's just over 40. It's it's decent. I wouldn't call it great. But still, he's the vice captain of the team and Kohli rates him highly along with Pujara in the test setup. What, what would you think is, like, a reason, like, teams would persist with and not just Rahane but you know players like that overall at most teams do you think that's a lack of options or is it just that when they do perform when they hit those clusters it's usually you know it pays off I don't think it's a lack of options in India at least but with Rahane it's like there is a correlation with his good scores and quote-unquote important matches you know at Lords or in Melbourne so those those knocks sort of prove to the team that he really puts up his hand when it matters, so to say. I don't believe in that, but yeah. So that's what the team thinks. And therefore, he has value, which is not properly quantified through the numbers. And that's why they stick with him. I think that's that's pretty much the reason I can fathom from the outside. Yeah, I think uh, the point about Rahane is interesting because he scored a lot of his runs on, you know, at least anecdotally, on tougher wickets, as people like to say. So like even Chennai, the second test, he scored a pretty solid 67 on a wicket where, you know, run scoring wasn't easy. And I know Ashwin and Rohit showed otherwise, but but for the most part, that was true. And um, so there's that perception that, yeah, he's not the most high-scoring batsman in, you know, when he's walking in at 250 for four. But if he's walking in at 50 for three or whatever, then he, he shows up and he at least scores a 50 or 60. So that's why, like, there's that perception and there's that value. And and to be fair to him, he has scored some good knocks, over, uh, you know, overseas. So it sort of uh, goes into this idea that the team has that, yeah, even though he's not scoring as much at home, he's he's proving his worth outside. So I think that's where this analysis combined with 
uh, I don't know if there's an easy way to do this, but obviously like conditions, uh, batting conditions, that would probably, you know, give us a better hint as to why people, why teams align with, you know, such players or keep pursuing such players. Because if they see that those small clusters, infrequent clusters or purple patches uh, are always in conditions where other batsmen don't do as well, then they might say, hey, we're, we're okay carrying him otherwise because he's going to pay us, you know, pay us back when, when he, we're in tough, tougher conditions. Yeah. And it's also a selection question, right? Because you can't drop a batsman at home and then play him overseas. Uh, that sort of breaks the continuity of the team according to your, your uh, classic policy of selection. So that sort of question is a little tricky because you can't just pick a batsman to play away and then tell him to not play at home. So I think that also factors in, and it's a peculiar case that Rahane plays worse at home than he does. You can't really drop him for pick him away again. So I think it's a matter of continuity, and it's a matter of realizing that he's performing quote unquote when it matters. Yeah, this this is very interesting analysis, uh, Himesh. So which brings me to another point. Actually, two points. One is I think you know down the road in my my mind immediately went into like how we can get this sort of like you know clusters and voids into the you know, the viewers on the TV, right? Like, you know, down the road, I see a potential for, in, instead of showing just like averages or last five innings, we perhaps break down into, you know, uh, clusters or which clusters a batsman is in right now for the audience, right? That would be like very insightful in terms of yeah. understanding what are the odds of him, him or her performing successfully versus failing. So that's an interesting thought there. But my point uh, was, this is excellent for batting, but how would we, you know, uh, what would be a parallel for this in terms of like, you know, bowling metric? Well, I've thought about that. I've written a little code for this in parallel uh, for bowling. There I'm using wickets as a threshold. But I wrote that like three years ago. I haven't worked on it. But there is definitely an idea to sort of translate this over to bowlers, use wickets as a threshold and then see how it goes. My feeling is that that will correlate much, much better with conditions. Bowling is more condition dependent. And you will mm-hmm. see that certain bowlers don't pick up weekend in certain conditions used as holding bowlers. So I think you'll see that correlation neatly, but I haven't worked out. But that's a good idea. Yeah, looking forward to it. Well, coming back to your current article, Himanish, so can we infer that based on all the numbers that, you know, through the through this method that we can, at least for now, like come up with an answer that probably Joe Root of all the players, like in current, uh, you know, among the current crop of batsmen, would you say he's the most consistent batsman? Yeah, so his case is very weird. If you look at the numbers, uh, he is, uh, he has an average halo length of 20 innings, which is the second best after Bradman. Uh, when he is in a void, his average is 38, which is the fifth highest. Uh, so he's up there because even when he's not performing well, he's performing well. Uh, but he, but when he performs well, he's not going to those 70, 80, 90 levels. His average in clusters is um, 56. So he's a very peculiar batsman who's guaranteed to give you some. And I know this has been a complaint of commentators and uh, fans a lot that he doesn't convert. But it doesn't matter because he's giving you those 50s and 60s regularly. And that's what these numbers show you. And conversion is not a button that you can turn on in your hip and you convert. So as long as he's churning out the runs and difficulties for England, and these numbers show he's doing that. So I think he's good. I think he's pretty consistent, yes. All right, well, there you go. Uh, we leave it there. So based on the methods him and Ish talked about, it would seem that Joe Root is the more consistent batsman among his peers. Now, if you disagree, feel free to share your respectful opinions and perspectives uh, by leaving a voice message or tweeting us at uh, The Last Wicket on Twitter. Uh, you know, this is not a debate that is going to be settled easily, and we would love to hear your thoughts. And I leave the last word to him, Anish. We'll also link the Excel sheet with the data for all the players. So if you guys want to peruse it or look at it and talk about it with your friends, uh, you can do that. We'll also leave a link to all the cluster graphics. You might have seen them in the article. I have those in a folder for all, whatever, 95 batsmen uh, at the end of the first test between India and England. So we leave that with you so you can go through them the board. All right. Sounds good. Well, that's it for this episode of The Last Wicket. 
Do join us next week when we talk to a special guest about the Indian perspective on the Pakistan Super League. We'll also be taking a look at the test career of a certain Mr. Fav Duplessis. So do subscribe to this podcast to be notified of new episodes. Follow us on your social media feeds and do spread the word about this show. We'll be putting up the links to the articles referenced in this episode to our show notes. And for more details, please visit our website at thelastwicket.com. Once again, thank you for listening and we hope you come back for more. From all of us here at The Last Wicket, have a great week.